Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am happy you're here today to get smarter with me about all things money, happiness, work, and meaning. Today's episode is an encore episode originally released in September of 2020. Remember those days? Staying home. Ah, the quarantine. Yes, we're on the other side of it. For the most part, not totally, but you know what I'm saying. This is a guy named Bill Perkins. His book, Die With Zero, Getting All You Can From Your Money and Your Life, is one of the most impactful books I've read as part of the podcast over these past two and a half years. It's not the kind of book that is going to knock you over the head with its profundity. It's just a really simple, clearly and logically structured argument that we should all do our best to see that the money we made goes to its best use while we are still alive. This isn't a book about screwing over your heirs or screwing over charities or leaving nothing for other people. Much to the contrary, Bill argues that you have earned this money that you've amassed over time and that for you to get satisfaction from it, you should put it to use while you are still able to enjoy it. For example, the model currently is, well, work until you're 65 or 70 or whatever, and then start to live, then start to travel, then go out and see the world, then take up rock climbing or whatever the hell it is you want to do. Well, guess what? At 70, 65 or 70, you're not going to have the knees and the hips to be able to enjoy walking around the cobblestone streets of Europe and the cafes of Rome and enjoy the diving in the Greek islands. You know, it's like, do it now while you can. Similarly, you know, if you want to help your kids out, don't wait till you're dead to do it. Maybe give them a little bit of a starter when they can really use it. Give them that down payment for their house so they can get started building equity at a relatively young age. Similarly, make those donations to charity while you are alive because then you get to have the satisfaction of seeing the work you do help someone else. All this stuff is really pretty simple if you think about it. But here's what I know. For every friend of mine that I've sent this book to, they've all said that their minds were pretty much blown because as simple as all this stuff is, it really runs counter to the prevailing narratives about how you're supposed to manage your money as you get older in life. I'll tell you about Bill in just a second, but I want to acknowledge, yes, we've had a few Encore episodes the past few weeks, We'll sprinkle them in here and there as necessary throughout the year because, hey, I've got 121 back episodes, almost all of which are really worth your time if you haven't heard them. So I'm going to keep bringing the best ones forward for you to share and share with your friends. I've got two great new episodes coming up. First, next week with Stevie Van Zant. Yes, Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, who's also a musician of significant renown in his own right and an actor that you know from both The Sopranos and his Netflix series, Lillehammer. He's going to be talking about his new memoir, Unrequited Infatuations, which comes out September 28th. The week after that, I have a deep dive into the issues we have here in Atlanta. The neighborhood where I live, Buckhead, is a very affluent neighborhood, and there is a movement for Buckhead to secede from the city of Atlanta. And I talked to many of the stakeholders, including the head of the Buckhead Committee and at least one candidate for mayor of Atlanta who will uh, discuss how we can fix the problems that the Buckhead City Committee is identifying and or what do we do if Buckhead secedes. The reason this is relevant to a show analyzing the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning is that we make decisions when we make money that have unintended consequences. And one of those decisions is 
We isolate ourselves behind big houses and yards and gates and hedges and things like that, or even by buying bigger cars or bigger seats on airplanes, and we don't talk to our neighbors. And I think this situation in Buckhead is is that tendency writ large. Is Buckhead saying, hey, we want to be safer, so we're going to build a big virtual moat around our city using police and keeping our tax dollars in our neighborhood as opposed to sharing them with the city of Atlanta overall. And I'm not sure that's a great decision that's going to lead to a happier, uh, more copacetic life for all of us, even if we do get to spend the money on ourselves as it were. So those are two new great episodes coming up in the next few weeks. I know you'll enjoy them. Let me tell you about Bill Perkins. He was called the last cowboy by the Wall Street Journal. He's one of the world's most successful hedge fund managers and entrepreneurs. After studying electrical engineering at the University of Iowa, Bill worked on Wall Street, then moved to Houston, where he made a fortune as an energy trader. He's currently CEO of Brisa Max Holdings, a consulting services firm based in the U.S. Virgin Islands. He is now 52 years old. Bill views his career as an engine for personal growth and spends his time exploring the world, savoring relationships, and taking in all that life has to offer. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill Perkins. Bill Perkins, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Glad to be here. True or false, Bill, the goal of life should be to make as much money as possible. Absolutely 100% false. What? About, what? Yes. <laughs> it's I about thought you were Netflix. a capitalist, man. You're a trader. I, Come on. I am. I am. But the reward we're looking for is fulfillment, not money. Money is just a path towards that fulfillment. It's a tool. And we want to use that tool correctly, but it's all about net fulfillment over net worth. All right. Before we jump into the theories you advance in your book, Die With Zero, getting all you can from your money and your life, I want to know, how did you get to this point in your life where you have the luxury of being a full-time contemplator of values? <laughs> and what was your early career all about? Yeah. How did I get to full-time pontification? <laughs> I started off on the New York Mercantile Exchange as a peon, as an assistant clerk, basically a guy who sneaks in sandwiches and checks trades. And I adored and loved commodities. It was fast paced. There was a lot of leverage. There was a field called options, which I was learning, which was technical and interesting and complex. And uh, I basically had worked my way through the ranks and got recruited to come down to Houston and run an options desk. I was a journeyman trader for El Paso and Stat Oil. And then eventually worked with my friend John Arnold at his hedge fund, Centaurus Energy. We specialize in trading energy, primarily natural gas. And then did well there. And then when he called in rich and retired, I started my own hedge fund called Skylar Capital. And how long did you do that? Skylar Capital has been around for about seven years. I'm a dinosaur. I started off as a peon when I was 21 and I'm 51 now. So yeah. So what did your mom say to you when you made your first million? Oh, wow. Don't tell your grandmother because all she's going to do is worry that you're going to lose it. <laughs> but she wasn't worried about you losing your money before you had it, right? It was a really interesting thing. And I was just like, mom, that doesn't make any sense. Like, she's like, listen, just trust me. All she's going to worry about is losing it or somebody stealing it from, you You know, just don't tell your grandmother. And I never told her. How would you describe the attitudes towards money that your family taught you as a kid? You know, a lot of it was osmosis, very much into saving. You know, as a kid, back in the day, they used to have what's called the Christmas club. You could go to the bank and you'd have these little... I don't know, a book. You'd have a book of certificates and you were supposed to save whatever that amount was and deposit it in and the bank would stamp it. It would be saving for your Christmas shopping money, right? And so 
you know, we were taught to save and save for retirement and be diligent. And there were examples of, okay, there's this event coming up. It's called Christmas. You need to get people gifts or, you know, part of the culture is getting gifts. And that means you need to start saving your allowance or whatever it is now. So you come from a culture of savers and now you're a heretic. I'm definitely a heretic. I'm not anti-saving. There's definitely savings. Delayed gratification is definitely something that is recommended and also saving for survival. There'll be a time when your income goes to zero or at least your working income will go to zero and you want to survive. The number one experience we all want to have is to survive, to be alive, to have food and shelter. And there are certain events we want to have that we don't have the capital for or things that we want to happen in the future that we're saving for, right? Like all of our consumption is not immediate. So I'm not saying that there's no savings. I'm just saying that there is a optimal savings point. Spending one's savings is widely thought of as foolish or sometimes selfish even. Why is it neither? It's not foolish. It's not anything. It's a choice. It's basically each person has their own lifespan, their own health, how healthy they are, and their own goals and things that basically make them happy. And so when we're saving or consuming, right, we're just making choices on what do we want out of life. Usually we're saving it something later. I want to go on a big cruise later in my life and mm-hmm. it costs us much money. So mm-hmm. I'm saving up. I'm not spending it on other things. Those things are not as valuable to me as a cruise in the future. I'm going to take the cruise, right? And that's an individual decision. The other person is like, I can't stand cruises. I'm not going on cruises when I'm 65. I'm going to sit in my house and play chess. I'm going to go to the club and go, you know, wherever I am, and go to Bali and party, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't need cruise ship money later in life. (laughs) And so that's why it's such an individual decision, right? It depends on who you are and what experiences you want to have in life and when you want to have them. So you share an experience earlier in your career, you compare your savings attitudes to a friend of yours. I'm going to share one of mine. When I was 28, I was single, fresh out of business school, living in Manhattan with one of my best friends who was an analyst at an investment bank. And he spent a hundred percent of his post 401k money and then some on ski trips and Hamptons rentals. Meanwhile, I was doing everything I could to pay down my student loans as fast and as quickly as I could. Which one of us made the better decisions? You know, every, I get a lot of these questions like, is this the th- right thing for me? And the correct <laughs> answer is, I don't effing know. It's you. It's your yeah. choice. Like, But well, I will say this. If you're the type of person that your health is going to deteriorate and those events you can't replicate those skiing with your friends events, right? And your health is going down, et cetera. You may have made the wrong decision because that is a time period that you cannot get back, right? And there's also a health framework that you have that you cannot get back. Basically, you're deteriorating just like I'm deteriorating, just like the next person to you is deteriorating. And if you're in better shape now than you are then, then you just were in bad shape back then. Right? And that's just, that's just the, the facts of life. It right? might be and true, so, actually. Right? You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm in better shape and the best shape in life. That means you were pretty much slacking earlier in life. That's all that means. Yeah. Right. And so that is something that you have to weigh. Like if you're like, listen, that doesn't turn me on. I really don't like hanging out with you guys. I don't love skiing. Then you made the right decision. Right. Or all these other activities that are there. You'll have an equal chance to do them later and save money and do more of those trips. But these are decisions that everyone has to go through, right? Like, do I go on a vacation with my daughters while they're 13 or do I save, et cetera? And I'm like, well, that's a personal decision. You know, they're not going to want to go to Disney world with you when they're 18. They're not even going to want to hang out with you. You talk about bucket lists and things like that. And you made many other provocative points in the book that are worth considering, but 
The one point that really resonated with me is that you push all your readers to think about your kids' periods of lives as having expiration dates, essentially, as sad as that kind of sounds. But you say, make a list of the things you want to do with your kids in the next couple of years before they're out of this phase of their life. How did that dawn on you as something important to do? It hit me in many ways. I mean, now it's even hitting me harder now that they're teenagers. I'm literally begging them to spend time with me, right? It's like, it's, I am the uncoolest, weirdest, most awkward person. But before I was a God, <laughs> you know, just five years ago, I was a God to them. But there was this movie, which I talk about in the book, a uh, Pooh's Heffalump movie. It's a very sweet movie about friendship. You know, there's certain kids' movies that you just love watching with your kids. Hmm. And I enjoyed watching this movie with them. And I used to watch it often. And sometimes I would say, no, you know, busy, et cetera. And then one day, I'm like, hey, let's watch Pooh's Heffalump movie. And my daughter's like, that's a baby's movie, Dad. I don't want to watch that. I'm going to go outside and do whatever. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, that period is over. That is it. My sitting down and enjoying this movie with my daughters about friendship and kindness is done. This period has ended and we're in a new phase. And so the times I didn't watch with them, they're gone forever. That period's gone forever. And that happens not just with your daughters, also with yourself, your single years, your college years. You're hanging out with this group of friends and your frat buddies. You go on and you go on a different period of your life. And each phase of your life or category of your life has an expiration date. Some of them are not as hard and fast, like on December 25th, this is the end of X, right? But they do end. And in those phases, there are activities that are meant specifically for that phase. If you don't do them then, they're gone forever. Yeah. So the core idea of your book, and I'll paraphrase, and if I get it wrong, I ask you to correct me, but it's basically to say that your life is finite, so you should spend your money living before you die and it's too late. Why do some people oversave? Yeah, those who save, save too much. It's a great mystery on why this happens, right? You have a lot of like after the fact rationalization of why I have too much money in the bank, right? I think a lot of it is fear and culture and training and habits. Those are what I, I would blame, right? Without being a psychoanalyst with a large study, you know, people are afraid of the unknown. And so they try to act as their own insurance agent. If I save enough money, I can insure against every activity that is ever going to happen to me, which is <laughs> right, right. baloney. It's BS, right? Uh, it's just not true. And it's very inefficient, right? You're giving up your life to be an insurance agent for yourself for these things you can't even possibly know the probability of them happen. And even if they happen, your savings will probably get wiped out anyway. So you won't save enough, but that's one. Two is habit, right? Like to be successful in a capitalist society, you need to provide value to other people. That's the basis of capitalism. I create something of value and then we exchange, mm -hmm. right? And you have to get good at certain things. You have habits, you go to work, you study these things, you do these routines, you put in lots and lots of hours of doing this. And pretty soon you're on autopilot. You're good at it. You're moving along. You're, and the reward gets replaced by this abstract called money, right? Because originally the reward was the things you were going to do with the money, right? Nobody buys a hammer just to have a bunch of hammers and keeps buying hammers. They buy hammers to build houses, <laughs> right? Right, right. <laughs> That's the tool, right? Yeah. And money is the tool. So with the case of money, people just keep collecting money, Yeah. right? And that is not the goal. The goal is the experiences you choose to have with that money, whether it be giving to charity or building your house, going on a trip, putting your daughters through college, going to the club, whatever. I'm using a very broad definition of experiences, your choices, right? Right. But somehow along the way, there's this disconnect. 
How do you break out of it? Getting off autopilot is tough. And I think I suggest an exercise called uh, time bucketing, like not having a bucket list, but a time bucket. like dividing your life into periods. It could be five year, one year to the grave. So let's say your expected death date, you look it up, you can buffer it any way you want. Let's say it's 87, you're 51. Let's break it down to five-year increments. What experiences do I want to have in each five-year increment? It could be in any category. You know, it could be community, health, lifestyle, family, relationships, career. And let's just put them down. Like, I want to go skiing. I want to go with the whale sharks. I want to ride the Blue Rovio train. I can actually pull up mine that I bring. I want to read five books a year during this period. I want to maintain my charity giving it up and focus more on adoption. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, and Z. So I have all these different categories and these experiences. And then I go to, that's for my 56 to 61 and 61, whatever. A lot of the activities start changing because I know my body's deteriorating. Right. Right. Like I do not have wave running at 75. <laughs> I did it this weekend and it almost killed me. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't. I mean, like even now with my back, it's like, I don't have certain things are not in there. Right. And I know based on just my own body and deeply thinking about it, like how my tastes are going to change and the things I'm going to want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And the activities I want to do. And once I have that, like if I could perfectly lay down all the things I wanted to do and leave like 10% or 15% for potluck stuff, but broadly look at the categories, I would know exactly how much money I need for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and, and so I'm trying to get people off of just goal setting. Goals are great. I'm trying to get you on modeling. This is about life cycle modeling from now to the grave. Let's get the most out of your life. So let's model it. Like, let's not undersave and be high and dry at 70, but let's not, definitely let's not oversave. I've been saying recently, I know a lot of people that never wasted a dime, but are certainly wasting their lives. And you may know some people that way, right? They're saving, they're putting this, whatever they're doing, and you're just their life is just passing them by. They're on autopilot. Yeah. So the obvious questions, even when you just look at the title of the book, you're like, all right, well, first of all, what if my actuary is off by 5%? <laughs> you know, I live like a king or a well-funded prince for 30 years, and then I eat cat food for five years. How do we manage against that running out of money fear? So it's not like you're going to sit one day and go, okay, I'm 51 and I'm going to die at 87. And this is the curve, right? It's dynamically updated. And the one thing we need to transfer our fear is we need to have a fear of wasting our lives. Right. People are so worried about running, like running out of money is not the worst case scenario, especially at an old age. Like if you look at the data, we can also start to look at the data and see that as people get older, they spend less and less money. That's because they do less and less activities. After a certain point, though, presuming you have kids, you got to get your kids out of college. You got to pay for some weddings, maybe some second weddings. Maybe you don't pay for the whole thing there. Right. (laughs) Right. And then you've got some end of life care that, you know, in the United States, we don't have the public health service. So I think a lot of people are sort of freakishly concerned and rightfully so that they're going to be paying 10 or 12 grand a month for nursing care for five years before they die. Yeah, I think, first of all, like you bring up all kinds of things that people have various fears and concerns and risks they don't want to take. The good thing about a well-functioning capitalist society like the United States of America, for every risk you don't want to take, there's somebody else who will take it for you. (laughs) So if you're worried about long-term care, you can buy insurance on that package. And it's fairly cheap, actually. I looked at it, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, I'm worried about, you know, having a nurse and I'm needing assistant care. You can insure that out. 
And guess what? Even though that industry or that insurance is making whatever a six or eight percent return and they lever it up and you know turns into 20% return, they're more efficient at it than you. That means you waste less of your life being the insurance agent for the fear that you're worried about. Because they can pull risk and I can't. Correct. Correct. They're going to be much more efficient at dealing with these risks. And so, you know, there's a specific part in the book I talk about. The statement is, you're not a good insurance agent, right? (laughs) Like, stop trying to insure these risks, right? Like, let's rationally think about them. Like, some people are willing to take certain risks, right? I'm willing to take the nursing home risk. I have a very kind of morbid view. I'm just like, when I'm decrepit and can't move, you know, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of money or work very hard to extend my life in a very low quality of life. I want to have fantastic, amazing adventures and memories with loved ones and family members now. And I won't sacrifice that for an extra three weeks alive in a bed. You say it in pretty stark terms at one point. You say you can't pay your way out of high-priced end-of-life medical care since uninsured medical care is so expensive. It won't make any real difference for the vast majority of us whether we save for it or not. Either the government will pay for it or you will die. Wow. Correct. Wow. Yeah, I didn't want to bust that out on the uh, on the podcast and scare people away, but it's true. No, it's, it's like, awesome. I mean, like, it's scary, but it's real. I, I it's had, real. I, I had this chat with my in-laws. They didn't want to go on a trip. They were like, we need to save for our medical stuff, whatever. I'm like, I tell them, I'm like, you guys are freaking crazy. Let's just go to the hospital, okay, and look at the rack rate on things that are uninsured. You're done. Like, at these calamities right. that you think you're saving for, you cannot save enough, okay? You're going to get wiped out either it's going to get covered by the government or somebody else, or you're just going to die. Simple as that. And all the more reason to make the most of the years when you're upright and can enjoy that Viking river cruise down the Danube. It's also a big wake up call to like, listen, be in shape. Do not destroy your body. Not only does it affect the longevity of your life, but the quality of your life and it affects every single subsequent experience. And we go into that, but this idea that people are like, oh, yeah, I need to save for my medical costs. I'm just like, you must be talking about vitamins, right? Because like, <laughs> have you seen the bills? Like if insurance doesn't cover it, you're done. It's over. I don't care if you have a quarter of a million dollars saved. It's $50,000 a night in some of these right. scenarios when you're laying in the bed. We're actually hearing like horror stories of a guy who had coronavirus. He spent a week. He got like some sort of $2 million bill. What was the point of saving for that? Right. So when grandma's 85 and broke, we just drive her out to the desert with some trail mix and a bottle of Dasani <laughs> and point her towards the setting sun. Is no, it's, 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 I love it's you, not, grandma. Hydrate. Grandma. Hydrate. No, it's just that I want to be realistic about what we can save for and what risks we can mitigate and what risks we have to pull mm-hmm. and allow other people to take on those risks for us. Right. And the structure, you know, the technology that's available today before there was no such thing as double bypass surgery. You just died. There are all sorts of ailments that now that you can extend your life and a lower quality of life that you just died. As we get older, the ability to keep your body alive, just your body is amazing. And I went through this with my father who had a stroke, went out, came to, but couldn't talk, was looking around, then went back into like kind of quasi comatose state. And the expenses were ripping through all various forms of insurance, like his insurance, the neck capped out, then some special government, whatever insurance capped in, et cetera. And a lot of people don't know this. There is a 
massive amount of euthanasia that goes on in hospitals every day. And How so? What does that look so? like? So what happens is, is that you're in a state where there's a form of life that we don't know. Like you can't respond, you can't whatever, but the machines mm-hmm. are keeping you alive. They're breathing for you, et cetera. And we don't know if you're in pain or in pain. And what the hospital staff does is that they give you morphine. Right. Tease the pain. But the morphine is really going to stop your heart. So they give you a big dose of morphine and then you die. I know there's probably families out there that are to listen, have gone through this, but ask anybody in a hospital staff in, in that area in hospice or that type of care, that decision is made every single day. And on the record, it'll just say morphine given for pain. Right. But if you look at the doses of morphine, basically it stops your heart and you die. Heavy stuff. It's very sad. It's a very sad decision and very tough. But it's also very real. I mean, we're all going to die, right? I mean, there's no getting around it. And we talk about financial planning and all these things and what should I do for work? And all of it comes back to the basic question that very few people ask that you're drawing your line in the sand is like, the quality of your life matters more than the length of your life. The, what you do with those years is more important than, and it's a function of both quality and time, right? You want right. both, but like why die with half a million or $50 million in the bank when you could have used that to enjoy life? Because that's what you're put on earth to do. Yeah. You get one go around, right? There's no do overs. You don't get to do your twenties over. You don't get to do your God. marriage over. You don't get, <laughs> you know, some of us wish we get it. So you want to use all your resources your health, your body and mind, right? Mm-hmm. Your money and your time to get the most you can out of it. And I'm basically about proper resource allocation at the right times. People who are going to work, spending their time for money that they're never going to spend are not allocating their time correctly. And they're definitely not allocating their money correctly along the curve of their life. They're coming up short in the game of life. They're not living as full a life as they possibly could. Okay. So let's say I'm 32. I've been trading or doing whatever it is. I'm a tech guy. I've made $10 million. Should I quit? Let's say I'm 36. I've made $40 million or whatever the number is, $8 million, $3 million. If you live someplace cheap, like when is the time for me to start decumulating my assets or choosing joy over work? There's two things. One, you can continue working as long as you continue spending. Right. If you like working and you're Mm -hmm. making six million dollars a year and that makes you happy, that's fine. But make sure you also consume the six million. Right. And that consumption could be for yourself, your loved ones or charity to live optimally. The second thing, it's not a number. It's a date. Right. Because if you look at it quite simply, right, we want to die with zero regrets. And that means dying with zero money. Right. That means we used all our resources properly along our life. Right. That's the goal. And so that means at a certain point. We need to start going down towards zero. Well, we're not going to consume all our money and all our resources that we have the day before we die when we're 80, right? And obviously, since our bodies are deteriorating, certain experiences, we can't even have consumption, right? There's a certain point that you throw a trillion dollars at a person, they can do nothing about it, right? They're in bed, they're in house, they're watching Jeopardy, they're eating tapioca pudding. And I'm using like my relatives as an example. And so what you start to realize is there's this curve. And this curve has an apex. And that apex is not related to a number. It's related to a date. And it's related to your biological age. It's a relationship between your biological age, the slope of your deterioration, and your death date. And so for most people, that's going to be, I think, the net worth is going to peak between uh, 50 and 55. But everybody has a different death date. Everybody has a different health curve. Some of us are in fantastic shape, right? Like delaying gratification from 51 to 57 may not be that steep 
for them, right? And so they have more utility of money at 57 than another person. But another person at 51 who's you know overweight, out of shape, smoking or whatever, the difference between them at 51 and 57 is drastic. They can't walk around the streets of Paris at 57. They can walk around the streets of 51. So they are not delaying gratification to 57 to go on trips to Paris and so on. And so it's highly individualistic, but we understand the shape and the curve for everybody. And that number is a date. So I say net worth peak is a date, not a number. Got it. All right, Bill, this is the most important question I've had. I've worked hard. I've saved my money. And I know you're telling me to spend it. But here's the thing. I don't feel like I deserve to spend it. Wow. This might be outside my area of expertise. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that you deserve to live and you deserve the fullest life possible. And you went and you earned that money so that you deserve to make the choices that fulfill you, whatever they may be. Not what I tell you what to do, but what you want to do. And so you have as much a right to life and a fulfilling, happy life as the next person. And I hate to tell you that it's not the earning the money that makes you happy, makes you a little bit happy, but it's what you do with it, what you do with that tool, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you don't feel that the consumption should be for you, then the time is now for the consumption to be for other people, the well in Africa, the starving kid, the adoption agency, whatever charity it is. But the time is now for you to live your best life. I'm sort of role-playing there, not entirely, but sort of, because I think that one of the reasons people oversave is because they don't feel like they're worthy of reaping the benefits. They feel that it's selfish of them to do it. You know, you give some examples of, you gave your grandmother $10,000, And she's one of these plastic on the sofa grandmothers. And (laughs) if you don't have one, maybe you've met one in your life, listeners, but I certainly understand what you're talking about. And the only thing she did with that $10,000, as far as you could tell, was buy you a sweater, which cost about 50 bucks. What did you want her to do with that money? And why didn't she do anything with that money? Well, I hope she'd go on like a bus tour, get her friends together, take the girls out, crazy bingo night. I don't know, whatever grandparents do, right? Like I thought she would have an adventure and bring her friends along for the ride. And what I realized is that there's a much lower level of ability and desire to do these types of activities, right? That her ability to convert money into experiences was diminished. It would have been much better for me to pick experiences. Like, hey, grandma, I'm taking you and your friends here. You know, that would have been a much better Mm. gift, right? Oh, that's interesting. So that was in charge of the consumption. And it made me realize, I was like, wow, this is going to be me eventually. Right. The desire and the ability to convert money into experiences is going to go down. In the same way, you're making gifts to your mother. How are you hoping or how has she used the money in ways that kind of fit what you're hoping for? When I first like, I made it. I gave my mom money. Like she fixed the garden up, you know? (laughs) I was just like, there you go. (laughs) Retreat the house. And I was just kind of like, wow, you know, like, wow, like really, like that's the extent of, this is what I'm looking forward to. And I'm thinking that I'm not going to be that way, but actually these are my ancestors. I am going to be that way. Who right. am I kidding? Right. Right. It's like, going to be like, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to watch Jeopardy. And you know, I want the grandkids to come to my house every year for Thanksgiving. Right. I never leave my house. Right. Like that type mm-hmm. of thing. I'm not saying everybody's going to be that way, but it's a very, very stark and clear example of, the inability to convert money into experiences. 
Do you mean you later know? in life, especially? Later in life, later in life, as okay. you get older. Okay, and this fits directly into the most obvious question, the one you say you get asked the most. Here's the headline when I review your book in the New York Times. Author advocates spending all his money before he dies, and boy, are his kids pissed. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is the number one question feedback I get. Like, what about the kids? What about the kids? And I have a chapter called what about the kids? So what and about so, the kids, Bill? What about the goddamn kids? So the thing is, is that this book is about optimization. And when I'm talking about optimization of your money, I'm not talking about your kids' money, the money you're going to give to your kids, right? That's theirs. So if you're giving money to your kids and you're being responsible, you are separating it out from your accounts, putting it into a trust or their own bank accounts. That way, if you get drunk and hit somebody or whatever happens or get sued <laughs> in some bad business deal, right. you don't lose the kid's money. Right. So that's one thing. So now we're talking about spending your money. And until you separate out and plan for your kids, it's not their money and it's at risk. The second thing is, is that the time to give kids money is not when you die. 60-year-olds are not kids. You might have a kid who dies before then. Sad to say, right? But we don't know who's going to be living in the future. And their bodies also deteriorate the same as your body deteriorates. So there is an optimal period for them to be spending and consuming as well. And so if you're trying to have an impact on their life, right? Money is just a means to get experiences, right? It's just a tool, right? And you want to give them the tool when it has the most impact. $100,000 at 60 maybe like $30,000 at 33 based on their ability to convert that into positive life experiences. And since you haven't set aside, it's going to be a random amount of money. People are like, oh, whatever I don't use, I'm going to give the kids. So you're going to give them a random amount on a random date. Mm-hmm. And so I call it the three R's, right? Like your plan for your kids is a random amount of money on a random date to random people. That's not caring about the kids. The die with zero way, life cycle modeling Right When you're thinking about your life from now to the grave and the experiences you want to have and the experiences you want your kid to have, now we're thinking, right? Now we're modeling. Now we're off autopilot. It's like, oh, wow, really the maximum impact for me to give money to my kids is probably around between 28 and 35, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're mentally mature and they're physically mature and they can convert that money into experiences without lighting it completely on fire like <laughs> I would have, you know what I mean? <laughs> At 17, right? And I know who's alive and I've separated the amount and I know the exact amount I want to give them. So I'm giving them an amount that doesn't spoil them and completely ruin them, but enough that keeps them comfortable. That's deliberate living and planning. And that's what I advocate for. You could come up with the amount to give them in two different ways. Well, probably in thousands of different ways, but here's two different ways I'll offer you. One is you talk about having accounts that's your money and their money. And you could say, well, here's what I have and here's how I want to live until I die. And the remainder is that Delta is what you could give them. But that could be $50,000 or $50 million, right? Or you could say, here's an amount of money that will do my kids the most amount of good and then back that out and then everything else is my money and spread that out over the remaining years, which is the way you approached it. I looked at it from the standpoint of the benefit for the kids. And so what is the maximum amount of help or resources I can give them that won't destroy them? What won't rob them of the adventures of life? Won't remove every single obstacle for them? You know, that's a very personal, like, I don't care if my kids are, you know, quadrillionaires and never lifted finger and blah, blah, blah. I just want them to be happy. Or I want them to be insulated against certain things and the ability to chase certain dreams, et cetera. But I also want them to have certain obstacles, right? And that's a 
very, very individual personal thing. But what I do is, is that's the way I look at it because I'm thinking about my kids. And then once I carve that out, the rest is mine to optimize, right? Right. So if I give my kids 100% of their inheritance while I'm alive, how will I manipulate them and their spouses when I'm older? <laughs> that's a, <laughs> it's a very, it's going to be, you're going to have to just use the shame tactic, you know, the old guilt, <laughs> the guilt school. <laughs> All you got is guilt, right? <laughs> guilt and shame. Yeah. I, I do think that certain people try to control their kids throughout their lives. And, you know, I'm personally not an advocate for controlling kids' lives. You know, my job is to prepare them to be independent, caring people who can navigate the world and then let them go make their own mistakes. I've lived my life. I'm going to let them live theirs. And so I am not trying to control them while I'm living past a certain point. And I'm certainly not trying to control them from the grave. Yeah. Right. And so that's me, you know? Um, But if you're like, Hey, this is a control mechanism. You can design a trust to squeak it out every, you know, yeah, <laughs> every, yeah. over the time frames you want, right? Like there are ways to do that that allow you to separate how much you're going to give them. You can still control it and then yank it back. You know, there's all kinds of contraptions out there. The first time my wife and I sat down with an estate lawyer and they started asking us all these questions about, well, you know, what if, you, when you die, what if you, whatever, all, all these kinds of contingencies. And there's all these different ways you can dole out wealth. And the more you think them through, the more it becomes clear that certain people try to manipulate their kids from the grave. You only get this money or a certain amount of money if you're making a certain amount of money on your own. Or we'll match how much you bring home on a W-2 with money from the estate. And at a certain point, you just have to say, do I trust my kids to make good decisions or not? Yeah. And for me, it's past that. You know, it's like, they're not my decisions to make. I'm a mistake-making machine. I, <laughs> I am like a new and improved X1000 mistake maker, right? And so and I'm a hard way learner. I learn better from making my own mistakes than watching other people's mistakes. But my kids, it will become their time to make their own decisions and make their own mistakes and live their own adventure. And I want to get the F out of the way. I want to be a voice that they can come to for the wealth of knowledge I've had and the corners I've gone around to give them some insights. But at the end of the day, it's their ride. And so that's kind of my approach. And that's what, you know, I'm at it. You know, I'm not one of those parents like, well, you got to marry a Native American by age 27 or else, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, right. It's, you know, it's like, let go, you know? Yeah. Your publicist called me about the book and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And the first thing I did when I saw the titles, I go to your Instagram feed and I see you hanging out with very beautiful people in lovely exotic locations. And so my first thought is, oh, this guy's kind of a douchebag. <laughs> you're kind of like a Kardashian or something like you're like trying to live bling. And then I read your book and it's like, this is thoughtful quantitative analysis with a lifetime operating theory behind it. Right. And it's a meaningful operating theory. So what is your day-to-day life? Like, how do you extract the joy that you're advocating and giving others who might not feel they have permission to do it? You're giving them that permission to do it. What does it look like for you on a day-to-day week-to-week basis? Yeah, I'm definitely giving people 100% permission to live their life, to like look at their life from now to cradle grave, model it and make sure you get every last bit out of it. And, you know, for me, I'm winging life just like everybody else, right? I'm trying to model it. I'm like, okay, is this the right balance to be with my kids? Is this the right balance to be working, you know, screen jockeying, trading commodities? Is this the right balance to be traveling with my friends and goofing off and going bananas, right? Is this the right amount of charitable giving and charitable focus, we're all trying to find that balance. And I think as long as you are 
thinking about it, not on autopilot and showing up, you've won. Half a life is showing up. You know, that's one of my favorite sayings. And if you show up for your own life and you're thinking about it, like, okay, I know this period is going to end and these are my kids and blah, blah, blah. And you make a decision, right? It's not going to be perfect, right? We can never achieve perfection, but you're getting there, right? And so for me, it's a combination of family, spending time with my daughters, imparting some sort of wisdom, getting them ready to go navigate the world on their own adventure, travel, the things I like. As you can see, I love travel. Mm -hmm. I love the water, Mm -hmm. right? Those are my douchey things to do. <laughs> and then, and then, I didn't, and, uh, well, I'll, I'll get back to that, but please finish your you're back to that. You know, I have certain things where I'm the tip of the spear in charity work. And, you know, these are the charity causes that I think I can make the work world better. A lot of times it's me getting the hell out of the way and just writing a check. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's me actually rolling up my sleeves and helping. Right. You know, that's actually very rare, right? Because there's so many experts out there. There's community stuff projects, learning projects, you know, you're just thinking about them like, okay, these are the things I want to do in my life and I'm mapping them out and I'm trying to just find balance. And I think some people naturally find balance better than others. And I think those people are just a little bit more aware and off autopilot. So to be clear, you're not advocating life 24 seven in Ibiza on the beach, you know, for midnight raves and stuff like that. No, no, I'm not even advocating like travel. Like that's just something for me. Somebody else might I like building birdhouses or something. It doesn't really matter the activity, right? It's really getting in contact with the period, the type of activities that go into this period and making sure that you suck them up and use them up. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm giving them a methodology on how to think so they get the order of their life right. Life is like Tetris. If you're in heaven, right? God goes, look, here's this basket of activities. You can do all of these. And they have charitable activities, have kids, have sex, have whatever all these things, these passive activities. But the trick is you got to get the order right. You can fill your life up with all these activities, but if you don't get the order right, you don't get to pack them in your life and you live suboptimally. You know that game Tetris where it's like the shapes are coming down and you don't get the high score? That's life, right? Mm -hmm. You get married before you go hike Everest. You may never hike Everest, right? Because you got kids and there's risks and responsibilities. It takes five weeks or whatever. Everest is gone. You don't do the college prank of stealing a statue and moving it to the side. I guess you don't want to do that. Statues are bad. Let's not go to statues right now, Bill. (laughs) Can we try to keep this apolitical? We're we're hanging the banner over the the dorm or whatever it is. It's done. Your college prank years is done, right? Like your single years, they're done. The so-and-so, the years. Life passes you by and you have dynamic decisions, right? That decisions and dynamic decisions are decisions that affect every subsequent decisions. One of the biggest dynamic decisions is getting married. You're not going out to the club raving with your boys. Well, at least maybe not, you know, <laughs> once you get married, once you have kids, that's a huge dynamic decision. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how many times I'm hanging out with my friend, uh, Dan. He's like, why are you leaving early? What are you going? I was like, I got to go to a soccer game. I'm flying. You're going to fly 3000 miles to go to a soccer game. I'm like, why would you make that decision? Like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Dan, I made that decision 13 years ago. Right. I didn't know it then, but that's the decision <laughs> I made 13 years ago. Right. And that's a dynamic decision. Right. So like. My hanging out in Bali with my friends and staying an extra day, I got that order wrong. Maybe I should have been doing that beforehand than before I had kids, right? Yeah. So you're very purposeful about the way you spend your money and the way you pace out your money. Tell me about your 45th birthday and why you decided to go large on that. Yeah. You know, there's all these like cultural milestones, like 50 and 40. And I was like, 
I was just one of those guys, like, I, n- I never thought I would make it to 30. I don't know why. I just had this, like, growing up in Jersey City, like, I won't live past 30, mm. <laughs> you know, Y2K. And so I've been doing well. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till 50. Like, my mother's this age, there's friends I had. And I started thinking, like, why am I delaying? I'm never really going to be able to get some of these people together. I may not know them. They mm-hmm. may die. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom is getting to that point where she don't want to travel or leave. And I just decided that life is for the living. The time is now. I'm going to create memories and the dividend of the experience is worth it. And so we didn't really talk about it that much, but there's a concept that I talk about, which is called memory dividends. Mm-hmm. When you have an experience, not only do you get to enjoy that experience when you're doing it, right? Let's, let's say you went and played softball. You hit the game running home run and that felt great. You get to enjoy that experience and have an experience reliving that, talking about it, reminiscing about it, et cetera. Whether it be in your bed late at night, smiling that you hit the game winning home run, or you're telling friends at dinner, like, mm-hmm. hey, we played the softball game, the guy pitched whatever. And that's what I call the memory dividend. And just like investment, when you put money in the bank, you get interest and you get to take a portion, like 2% interest, you get $2 a year. With an experience, you get to relive a portion of that experience and get joy from it and you get dividends. And sometimes the dividends actually add up more than to the joy of the original experience. Yeah. Right. And so I put all that together and it's like, the time is now. I'm going to go big. I'm going to invite all my friends down. We're going to have this great thing. And I'm going to have basically a deathbed memory on this trip. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, I think life, you know, you go through your twenties and you go to a lot of weddings for your friends, you know, there's graduations and stuff before that. I didn't get married till I was 38. So maybe that extends through your thirties. Maybe a few people get married another time. Maybe you get into your early forties, but at a certain point in your life, you don't have those kinds of life events that pull everybody together. And so you have to choose to create those kinds of events because they don't happen spontaneously. Correct. You have to make it happen. And these events, like when you sit down and you go, party or you're talking to people, right? Like I did a survey, 75% of the conversation were things that have happened, not things that are going on or not things Mm -hmm. that will happen, but things that have happened. That's a narrative of who you are. What makes you interesting? The story you have to tell the experiences like, Hey, I went to Bali. Don't go do this. Go eat here, go there. Right. And so those experiences are kicking off dividends upon dividends and dividends. So like, just like investing in the market, you know, Buffett says, invest early, invest early, invest early. The same thing with investing experiences. I say invest early, early, early right now. So you can take advantage of the memory dividend and you want to make it happen. It's not going to happen by osmosis. And plus you don't know if what your capacity to enjoy those things in the future is going to be either. Which we've been talking about the deterioration, right? Like I may not be able to do X, Y, and Z. This person may not enjoy it, et cetera. Like we all know that our ability to convert money into experiences diminishes as we age. That's just an axiom. And so that could be because of your attitude. That could be because of your inability to do it, your health, or you just, your health is just bad enough. So it's not enjoyable. Yeah. I tell people when I lived in Paris for a summer, I used to say, like, we had this plan, like, we're going to go live some city in the summer for 10 summers. And then maybe by the time I'm 50, I'll be interesting. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, I've, I've gone and lived a bunch of places. Right. right. And so, Hey, man, you can go live in Tupelo, Mississippi for a summer and come out with some interesting experiences. Yeah, and anywhere, anywhere but where I'm at, right? And just learn the culture and stuff like that. And so I used to walk around Paris like 
10, 12 miles a day, just soaking it in all the neighborhoods. I used to walk to my immersion French class, walk back, walk all the way over to this place, like just walked everywhere. I can't do that now. I mean, I could do it. It would be less enjoyable. So after mile six or seven, I'm not enjoying it. So it's not the same Paris, right? The value proposition of Paris has diminished for me, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying it's not enjoyable. It's fun. Yeah, going to Paris at any age is going to be enjoyable. It just is not as enjoyable as it was seven years ago. Right, yeah. And that's going to be the true for everyone. I usually give the example of St. Petersburg when I went to climb the 211 steps to go walk around the domes of the church, which they allow you to do, which is amazing because you get these amazing views and you walk around church. All the tour buses with all the senior citizens, not a single person walked up the stairs. Not a single person over the age of, I would say, 60 walked up the stairs. Yeah. My brother and I, and I'm one of six, but my brother and I were in the position to take my parents to Rome where they'd always wanted to go, I don't know, gosh, 20 years ago now. And my dad couldn't, he couldn't make the steps up to the top of the dome. And it was sad to see that, but we were still in Rome doing the best we could. And they had a great time. And that's one of those things my dad passed away a few weeks ago and looking through the pictures. Thank you. I was looking through the pictures and I was like, I'm really glad we did that. I looked at all these pictures and there's not one time I thought about, and by the way, I also had a big 50th birthday party with a small number of friends in Jamaica and we had an amazing time and I will never regret a dollar I spent on that trip. No, you know, it doesn't, you know, everybody's like, well, I don't like travel or whatever. There's something, right? These events of your life, there's these experiences that just go in this time period that you cannot delay and get the same value out of it. I'm not saying there's zero value. It's just not the same. And if we're thinking of our, our lives like a Sims character, like an avatar, and we're trying to get the most, <laughs> right. the fullest life. Who right? knows that we're not, Bill? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, could, we are in a simulation, right? We need to model and we need to allocate these experiences appropriately and we need to load them properly or else we're just going to have a Sim character that just doesn't get the maximum ride that they possibly could, right? Yeah. Given their resources. And this is not like just for rich people. This doesn't matter what your resources are. This is about modeling your life based on the resources you have, getting off autopilot, living your life deliberately, and getting the absolute most you possibly can out of life. So how has COVID changed or cemented your view on these topics? Oh, COVID has definitely cemented my view. One, it's given me pause to like think about, okay, what can I do now? What are those things that I want to do? What were the things I was delaying that are gone? And how does this all fit? It took the paradox of choice away, like this infinite choice box we have called life, right? And really narrowed it down. It's like, okay, what do I really miss? And what do I really wish I could be doing? What am I going to be doing when we get a lockdown? And also, what can I do now? Like, let me stop with the woe is me. What opportunities are here? out of this lockdown, right? And one of the opportunities, much to the dismay of my children, was I got to spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And do walks. And so I did that. And, you know, I I enjoyed walks and, you know, tried to spend time with my kids and and leveraged into that situation. But really, it's got me thinking like, all right, here's the time for self-reflection on what I really want out of life. What do I want to give? What do I want to get? And when? I'm thankful for that experience. I mean, that it kind of woke me up. I wish I was woken up different ways and everybody else was different ways that it's not a pandemic and there's so much death going on. But I think it gives people pause to think about their actual mortality. Yeah. And thinking about your mortality is a gift. Yeah. I share that point of view. I mean, I think this is a scary, inconvenient time, but it's a time that just reminds us that we got to wake up and give it everything we got every single day. Yeah. 
So along those lines, what deathbed regret do you most fear? Oh, man. You know, people have been asking me, like, what do you tell your 20-year-old soul, whatever? And my biggest regrets are when my first reaction wasn't kindness, it was anger. Mm. And so, you know, that sounds odd coming from Bize, right? Like, optimize your life, et cetera. But one of the things I've noticed about my life is that holding everything else equal, the quality of my interpersonal relationships is a huge determinant on the quality of my life. So I'm busted, but like I got great friends and my girlfriend's great and the relationship's great. I'm having the absolute time of my freaking life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I got a bunch of money, but having girl problems or, and, and, and friend <laughs> problems and drama, I'm ready to commit suicide. You know what I mean? Like I'm just absolutely miserable and I'm not a victim, you know, and I don't think anybody's a victim. And so when those things came up, instead of reacting with anger and those situations came up and those difficult spots came up, if I reacted with kindness, I might've had healthier, better relationships and mm-hmm. a better time. And some of those times I, I really hurt people and, and I, I, those are my regrets. My regrets are the times I've hurt other people. So minimize them between now and the grave. Yes. Minimize them. Like, you know, always kindness first, kindness first, kindness first. You know, I wish I adhered to that and was on that mantra much, much earlier in life. Well, it's a good place to end it. Kindness first, everybody. The book is called Die With Zero, Getting All You Can From Your Money and Your Life. The author is our guest today, Bill Perkins. Bill, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, you can go to www.diewithzerobook.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm always in the Twitter streets arguing, having fun. I, I'm a Twitter addict. Uh, <laughs> I'm BP22 on Twitter. And then if you want to check out some douchey shit, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> on Instagram. No, it's just basically a diary of my life and a lot of it, you know, the highlights of my life. He just uh, has a beautiful, beautiful girlfriend. That's all I'm saying. And it's pure. That's all. That's all. Yeah, that's true. She is beautiful. Uh, you can go to my Instagram and it's just Bill Perkins. My name's Bill Perkins on Instagram. My judgment just proves that I need to be thinking about kindness first, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Some of the things I got to do, like there are things like you try and I'm doing, I'm just like, wow, this does feel kind of douchey. You know? <laughs> it's like the, when I bought a Lamborghini and I was like, I feel like a douche. I got to get rid of this car. Well, that's, got rid of it. <laughs> that's probably the right, that's probably the right instinct, but that's okay. You live and you learn, man. I really appreciate your time. The book is very thoughtful uh, listeners. It's worth your consideration. Check it out. Bill, really appreciate it. Take it easy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I love it.